0: I want to speak today about the cross of Christ. And I don't, I don't mention the cross as something that we would worship as a figure is concerned. You know, today when we see a cross, it is usually an item of decoration or as, as a, either as a piece of jewelry or decorating the wall of a place of worship somewhere. Many, many centuries ago I'm told that news spread around the world of how the actual cross of Christ had been discovered. Now you think about that for a moment. The actual pieces of wood that Christ was nailed to, wouldn't that be amazing to be able to see such as that? But yet the motives of those who had announced that discovery were soon seen when they said that for a sum you too could have a piece of the actual cross of Christ. And if you've ever spent any time whittling on a piece of wood, you know that eventually that wood goes away. And so there was also invented the miracle of the recreation of the actual cross of Christ. And so it was just a hoax. That's all it was. I'm not looking today for those pieces of wood. And I hope no one else is spending time with that. But when we speak of the cross of Christ, we speak of what happened there and the significance of it. And the Bible uses the cross often to remind us of Jesus and Him crucified. But I want to go back in time to what the cross was when Jesus lived upon the earth. At that particular time, the cross was a tool of executioners. It was the most horrible way to die, devised by man for man. Thayer writes that the cross was the well-known instrument of most cruel and ignominious punishment borrowed by the Greeks and Romans from the Phoenicians, and to it were affixed the guiltiest of criminals, particularly the basest slaves, robbers, and the authors and abettors of insurrections. You see, the cross in the days of Christ was not a decoration, but rather an instrument of death. Crucifixion did not begin with Christ. The the word for cross is staros in the original, and that literally means an upright pail or an upright stake. If you study the history of the Jews and the Romans and the relationship that they had, the Jews, of course, were God's chosen people, And when they behaved, God blessed them with a physical nation so long as there was a need for a physical nation. And by the way, the purpose of Israel as a physical nation was to be the lineage of Christ. And so God allowed Israel to continue as a nation even even when they were in bondage, they were able to continue to trace their lineage so that by the time of Christ it could be proven that he was Born of the seed of David. But when, indi- when any nation conquered the Jews, they had a pesky people to rule. They had a rebellious people to rule. And when we read that the cross was used as a means of punishment of those who were the authors and abettors of insurrections. That means the Romans crucified anyone who would rebel against the government and try to start an uprising. That was what they commonly did. One such time of crucifixion that I remember hearing and reading about was when there was quite a few folks that had said they were going to rise up against the Roman government and all of the men of that rebellion were crucified alongside the roads. And that was common. The executions were public in those days. And so it is very likely that from the time Jesus was a small lad, he knew what crucifixion was. It is very, very likely that he had seen a cross somewhere or another, if not many of them, if not individuals who were still there by order of law, because that too was common for those who are killed on a cross to just be left there. As a public lesson, don't you dare rebel against the Roman government. In light of all of those things, it makes the Jews' words, we have no king but Caesar, a true mockery of the life that they normally live. When Jesus died on the cross, the form of punishment was not new. The Romans had used it for many years. They were good at killing people on a cross. They'd reduced many things to do with crucifixion to an exact science. Here are some things they'd learned. Nailing both the hands and the feet of the condemned person was a faster death than the original Phoenician way of nailing the feet and only tying the arms to a crossbeam. Now, if you're going to put on a show by killing someone, you can't have it lasting too long. And so they figured out if you nailed the hands and the feet, that worked. That worked better. They figured out if the prisoner's legs were stretched out straight, he died too fast. If you're going to do all of this for a pub- public spectacle to teach a lesson. You can't have it over too quickly. And so they figured out to push the legs up slightly and the feet pushed up just a little bit before being nailed to the upright and I'll tell you why in just a moment. They also figured out that where to place the nails in the hands was very crucial because if a person is going to be hanging from their entire body weight, anything really close to the edge would likely tear. And so it wasn't unusual for the nails to be as far back as here, and that still be considered the nails in the hands, because this is the strongest point where a body can support its own weight. And so they knew well how to kill someone by crucifixion. It is very likely that the city of Jerusalem already had poles without cross pieces set into the ground when Jesus was crucified. And hopefully that makes sense. Today, for those states that practice execution, every time someone is killed by order of law, they don't have to recreate or build from, from the ground up a chamber of death. They have those waiting. And so it was, many cities had places that were their chambers of death. They had upright stakes waiting in the ground. And so we have Jesus. We have Jesus captured in a garden. A place commonly of peace and rest and quiet, a place of refuge, became his place of agony and prayer. Remember, he went into the garden. He took with him Peter, James, and John, and he fell down on his face to the ground, and he prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. His sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood in the agony and the fervor with which he prayed. He came back and he found his disciples sleeping And whenever we look at Peter, James, and John in the garden at that time, we look at them and say, why would they choose that time to take a nap? Didn't they care? But one of the gospel writers tells us that they were sleeping for sorrow. Imagine seeing Jesus upset to the point that he would throw himself on the ground and pray in agony to the Father. Peter, James, and John had not seen Jesus like that. Of course they did not know that he was about to pay the penalty for their sins and for ours. They didn't know what Jesus was going through. They didn't know what he was about to go through. But they did know that Jesus was in pain. He was hurting emotionally and they didn't know how to help him. And so Jesus prayed while the disciples slept for sorrow And then the peace and quiet of that night in the garden was disturbed by the clamor of the armed mob led by one of Jesus' own, Judas Iscariot. You see, some days before, Judas had had all he could take. You know, they were there at the house, and this woman broke open a bottle of perfume and poured it out over Jesus, and Jesus accepted that, And Judas was just beside himself saying, why wasn't this sold and the proceeds given to the poor? Judas didn't say that, the Bible says, because he cared anything at all for the poor. He said that because he was lustful for money. Judas wanted money. Now isn't that pathetic? Can you imagine being with Jesus, being a follower of Jesus, hoping for riches? of a physical nature. Jesus didn't carry any money. Judas was the treasure. He bare the bag, the Bible tells us. But Judas had his own purse. And whenever anyone would give Jesus and his traveling troop a few coins, Judas took some for himself, stealing the pittance that Jesus' group had. Jesus didn't care about money but Judas cared more about money than anything else. And when he saw that perfume just wasted, when it could have been a lot of money for his pocket, that's when he went to those who were opposing Jesus, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those those who were the rulers of the day. He went to them and said, what will you give me for him if I tell you where he's going to be? What will you give me? They negotiated. And you imagine that negotiation? What will you give me? What will you give me? And so the offer was finally made and the agreement was struck for 30 pieces of silver. Ironically, 30 pieces of silver in the Old Testament is the price of a slave, not a living slave. Here's the way that worked, if we had adjoining farms and one of my animals got onto your property and killed one of your slaves, I would owe you the price of 30 pieces of silver. So what Judas did was he negotiated to arrive at the price of a dead slave. And that's what the Pharisees gave him, to put in his pocket. And that's what he had on him, I trust. Judas did the night he came into the garden. And he'd already told the group he was with, whoever I kiss, that's the one, that's Jesus. That's the one we're after. Well, when that armed group came into the garden, Jesus stepped out to meet them. And he, in my loose translation, said, who are you looking for? Whom seek ye, I think the Bible says exactly. Who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And as soon as they said that, Jesus said, I am he. At least that's what the King James translation of the Bible says. And if you ever look at that passage, the little word he there is in italics. And that means that's the translators doing their best to help us understand exactly what was being said. In this case, it takes away from the significance of what Jesus said, because when when he said, who are you looking for, and they said Jesus of Nazareth, what he replied was, I am. Is that familiar? That's the language of the name of God. And Jesus was proclaiming himself to be who they were looking for. And at the same time, he was saying, I am God. As soon as Jesus said, I am, that armed mob and Judas fell flat to the ground. There are many miracles concerning the events around the cross that are easy to miss. And those are God's way of saying, you are getting away with this, but you are not in charge. Satan was being allowed to have his way. Evil was being allowed to carry through its awful deeds. And so we have Judas and the armed mob flat on the ground, and can't we just see them as they get up and they gather their torches and they gather their weapons, and what was it, what was it, they have no idea. And Jesus then in the night says, who are you looking for? You think they braced themselves this time to say, Jesus of Nazareth? And one more time, Jesus said, I am. Only this time, God did not cause them to fall to the ground. And so they bound Jesus like a horrible criminal that he was not. And they led him away to be tried. And so, he went through the cruel mockery of a trial between Pilate, who said, I find no fault in him, who sent him to Herod. And that night, Pilate and Herod's friendship grew better because of this common sharing of this prisoner, Jesus. The reason Pilate and Herod were in town was for a show of force during the time of the Jewish Passover because that's when they usually had uprisings against the government. There was a huge show of force going on in those days, and that's why Pilate and Herod both were there. And so along the way, Pilate trying to get the Jews to release Jesus because he found no fault in him, Pilate attempting attempting to get out of this some way, his wife even in a dream or had had a dream about this and urged him, have nothing to do with this good man. Have nothing to do with him. There's nothing wrong with him. And Pilate kept asking the Jews, are you sure you want to do this? And they kept saying, crucify him. Crucify him. Let his blood be upon us and upon our children. And finally, Pilate had him scourged, had him whipped. Under Jewish law, there were limits. Under the law of Moses, a person could not be whipped more than 40 times. Paul says five times received I stripes, 39 stripes. 40 stripes save one is the way the Bible puts it. They would have a whip of three lashes. They would whip someone 13 times, 13 times three would be 39 stripes, and they would stop short of the limit given by the law of Moses, and that way they weren't cruel and inhumane, you see. And so that was the Jewish way of whipping someone as a punishment under the law of Moses. But we're not talking Jewish law of punishment, we're talking Roman law. When the Romans scourged someone, the one wielding the whip would continue to do so so long as ordered or as long as he had strength. And it was very usual for the one who was being scourged to die from that alone. And the repeated blows of the whip would have torn Jesus' body terribly. His visage was marred. Beyond recognition, you might say. Beyond that of any man, the Old Testament prophets say, regarding what was happening with Jesus. Along the way, they also twisted thorn branches together. They put that on Jesus' head cruelly. They mocked him. They mocked him as a false king. Finally, the time came when enough sport had been made of him to take him away to be crucified. So Jesus has been whipped. He has been mocked as a king, including with a crown of thorns. Individuals have come up to him and hurled insults at him. Individuals have actually been so bold as to hit him in two different ways, with the open hand just slapping him openly and the other closing their fists and just coming up and hitting him and saying, who is it that hit you? Tell us if you're the Son of God. Tell us if you're the Christ. Who is it that hit you? They also came up and they took turns spitting on him. All of these things, demeaning insults that Jesus suffered without complaint, without a word. And so, since the execution was a public spectacle, any events leading up to the execution were likewise public, Jesus was led through the streets of the city. What they would do at that particular time in the cities that were so equipped, they would put the cross piece across the shoulders of the one and ones who were going to die, And then they would also hang a sign around his neck that told of his crime. So as he went through the streets of the city, everyone could see what he was being punished for and to be warned not to do that. So when Jesus was led through the streets of the city, his sign simply said, The King of the Jews. And that's all. There was no crime. And so Jesus walking along weakened by being up all night in his emotional agony of what he was doing by the beatings, by the mockings, by the blows, stumbled and fell under the burden of his cross. The Roman soldiers, not about to carry it for him, looked into the crowd and saw a strong strapping fellow, and they said to Simon of Cyrene, you come over here. And they took Jesus' cross and they put it on Simon, and Simon carried that cross. Now if we were Simon, what would we be thinking? we would be thinking, I hope they don't forget whose cross this is. They finally would get to the place of execution. Jesus would at that time have been laid down upon the crossbeam. The crossbeam would have been laid on the ground, and Jesus would have been laid down upon it, and his arms outstretched, and then one soldier would have kneeled with his knee on Jesus' arm here, another with his knee on Jesus' hand to make a nice solid surface, a steady surface, an unmovable surface for the nailing. And then the carpenter would have very carefully, very carefully held that spike and hit it with the blows necessary to drive it through the flesh and into the wood far enough so that it would hold him on the cross." Soldiers likewise would kneel on this hand, on this hand and on this arm, the nail placed just so, and it too would be driven. Then Jesus would have been picked up. And the, the tapering of this would have been like so, with a matching hole in the cross piece was common. And so Jesus would have been picked up and over so that the cross piece to which he was nailed would have fit over this upright stake, and that would have then formed the picture that we're accustomed to seeing of the cross. But now it's time to do the legs. And so, at that particular point, Jesus' feet would have been pushed up. Now, there were several ways of nailing the feet. Um, One of them was for a nail in each foot. Another was to turn the feet like so, and the upper body would have been twisted and there would have just been one nail through the heels. That was common as well. And or one foot placed on top of the other and one nail through both. We do not know exactly, of course, how Jesus was nailed to the cross as far as his feet are concerned, but we do know that his legs would have been pushed up. The reason the legs were slightly pushed up before nailing was so the victim could use his leg muscles to push himself up to relieve the pressure on his hands. Otherwise, as a doctor explains, the sagging body uh, hanging on its arms went into a spasm which prevented the ability to exhale. And the victim would quickly suffocate from, an, from the inability to use their chest muscles to breathe out. And that will make sense to us with the thieves and how they died, you know. Jim Bishop wrote a book entitled The Day Christ Died, and he writes as if he were there witnessing all of the events, and he also writes as if we can feel what was being felt during this time of crucifixion. Here's the words of Jim Bishop from this book. Jesus' arms were now in a V position, and Jesus became conscious of two unendurable circumstances. The first was that the pain in his wrist was beyond bearing, and that muscle cramps knotted his forearms and upper arms and the pads of his shoulders. The second was that his pectoral muscles at the sides of his chest were momentarily paralyzed. This induced in him an involuntary panic, for he found that while he could draw air into his lungs, he was powerless to exhale. At once, Jesus raised himself on his bleeding feet as the weight of his body came down on the insteps. The nails pressed hard against the top of the wound. Slowly, steadily, Jesus was forced to raise himself higher until for the moment his head hid the sign which told of his crime. When his shoulders were on a level with his hands, breathing was rapid and easier. Like the other two crucified with him, the two thieves, he fought the pain in his feet in order to breathe rapidly for a few moments. Then unable to bear the pain below which cramped legs and thighs and wrung moans from the strongest, he let his torso sag lower and lower and his knees projected a little at a time until with a deep sigh he felt himself to be hanging by the wrists. And this process was repeated again and again and again until he died. When Jesus spoke his sayings from the cross... We need to know that he was powerless to exhale in order to speak unless he was pushing himself up on the nails in his feet to be able to breathe out. No wonder those sayings are so brief. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. To the thief who begged for mercy, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. To his mother, Woman, behold thy son. To the beloved John, Behold thy mother. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I thirst. One of the byproducts of crucifixion, thirst, dehydration, the loss of all bodily control. And when we talk about Jesus giving things up on the cross, he even gave up all of his dignity there. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And then finally he said, it is finished. It is finished. Many years ago, when I was first starting to preach about the cross of Christ, and this subject has just fascinated me through the years with all of the events and all of the people and all of the things and the great significance of what happened there, Lori, my daughter, the grown woman that was here the other night, was just a little girl. And in those days, as she would listen to me preach, or anybody for that matter, she she would draw a picture, and, and, she would, and she would say something about the lesson in what she wrote on her paper. This particular time, she'd looked through the songbook, and she drew me a picture, and she also picked out some words of a song. Now, the picture is just precious to me. And she shows me up here preaching, and my, what a good-looking fellow she's made me out to be. But the words of the song that she chose were the middle verse of one of the songs that's in our book from time to time. The words of that song say, Upon that cross of Jesus mine eye at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me, and from my smitten heart with tears two wonders I confess, the wonders of His glorious love and my unworthiness." The writer of that song, I think, speaks for all of us the wonders of his glorious love and my unworthiness. Because we cannot look there to that cross of Christ and say that is what they did. You know, we have to look at the cross of Christ and say that is what we have done, all of us all of us. And so when we speak of the cross of Christ, it is not a piece of wood to concern ourselves with. It is not a a shape to worship. But whenever the Bible speaks of the cross of Christ, it is speaking figuratively of Christianity as a whole. Because of the cross of Christ, the law of Moses is abolished. Colossians 2.14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And you know, in Old Testament times, a debt could be canceled by having a hole put through it. And so those nails literally become the means of payment of the debt of the old law, and we do not have to see innocent animals die any longer for the guilt of mankind because Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot has died for every one of us. The law of Moses is abolished because of the cross of Christ and we can have peace with God. Colossians 1 19 and 20 talks about making peace through his blood that was shed on the cross and remember how that went There came the time that they wanted the show to be over. They wanted the spectacle to be done. And so it was that the soldiers were ordered uh, to just go ahead and kill Jesus and the thieves that that were crucified at the same time that he was. And so we find that the soldiers came, and to the first thief they took their spear, their heavy, heavy spear and they used that like a baseball bat if you will and they just swung it really really hard and they broke the leg bones now remember how could a person exhale only if they could push themselves up on their feet and so as soon as they broke the leg bones of the first thief he had to sag and he would suffocate to death the second thief on the other side of jesus same thing break those leg bones with that heavy heavy spear And then while they are gasping their last, they turn their attention to Jesus. He was already dead. What kind of cruelty does it take to hurt somebody when they're already dead? You would think there's nothing more anybody's going to do to Jesus to hurt him. But oh, not so. Those same soldiers took that same heavy spear and just thrust that up into Jesus' side. The Bible says that from that wound came blood and water. His body was drained because of that horrible, horrible wound, and Jesus' blood literally ran down the cross and soaked into the ground. And so when we read, 1 Peter 1, verse 18: For as much as ye you know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus made peace through his blood shed on the cross. We can be reconciled to God because of what happened on the cross, according to Ephesians 2. And verse 16, Paul said in Galatians six fourteen, God forbid that I should glory or boast, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. We have nothing to boast about in our life. There will always be somebody bigger, better, in, in whatever way we ever choose to, to be proud. But I'll tell you, there's something we can all boast about, and that's the cross of Christ, because there's nothing greater that ever happened in this world than what happened when Jesus died upon the cross. And as we look there, we so many times see a victim, but actually what we should see is someone who was a victor, someone who was victorious. Because Jesus was taken down from that cross and he was put in a borrowed tomb, and just a little while later on the first day of the week, he came forth from the grave. And it is a risen Christ that we talk about when we preach the gospel of Christ. Paul said he was preaching the gospel not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. 1 Corinthians 1, 17 and 18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. You see, when the gospel of Christ is preached as the Lord intends for it to be preached, it will always include the story of the cross of Christ. Let us never forget that a bloody cross is part of our salvation. It is what happened at the cross, and without the shed blood of Jesus, we cannot have salvation. We do not want to end up, as is described in Philippians 3.18, as enemies of the cross of Christ, as one translation says of those, their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is their shame. Their mind is unearthly things. God wants us to be attentive to the cross and what happened there. And he says, our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, because of the cross of Christ, our citizenship is not here. Our home is heaven. And because of Jesus, we can look forward to that. One of these days. Dottie Rambo wrote a song that said, As long as I can see him hanging on a distant cross, dying between two common thieves, spat upon and mocked, as long as I can see his open wounds bleeding for me, then I can be what he wants me to be. If I can hear the hammer ring and see your wounded side, if I could feel the pain you felt when you hung your head and died, if I could see forgiveness in your eyes of love for me, that I could be what you want me to be. But don't let me walk too far from Calvary. Don't spare the agony of Gethsemane. I might soon forget the death you died for me. That's why I pray, Lord, don't let me stray too far from Calvary. Hebrews 6 discusses those who obey the gospel and then fall away. And verse 6 says that they crucify themselves, they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Whenever someone turns their back on God, it is as though the nails are being driven again, subjecting him to the public disgrace of the cross. Instead of that, God wants us to fill our lives with righteousness. In fact, Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And so the concept that is enjoined upon us is one of being willing to deny ourselves and serving the Lord and doing so every day. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 38, he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. So this is a challenge to every one of us that we too would bear a cross. This does not mean that we will find a piece of wood and strap it across our shoulders and walk around town. That's not what is being talked about at all. This is a figurative expression that says whatever we have to endure that may be difficult for us or trying to us or disgraceful to us or really, really hard for us to do, that is our cross to bear. And we all have those things. It is not an option because Jesus said, whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple, Luke 14 and verse 27. So we all have those things that are hard for us to do. And when we do those successfully, when we turn our back on temptation, when we do what is right, even when it's hard for us, we can say, That is our cross. That is our cross to bear. So our cross to bear may mean that when it comes to jobs that we might take, we need to be really careful with that. I'll give you one example that something that happened to me as a teenager, I'd moved away from home as a teenager and was fiercely determined to to make it on my own. And I lost my job that I had and I was just about broke and out of money, and uh, one of the things I did was went down and signed up for uh, commodities. This was in the days before food stamps. My mama liked to scalp me when she found out what I had done, because 50 miles away was all the food in the world in my mama's refrigerator and freezer, but I was going to make it on my own. Well, in my process of trying to find a job, I answered an ad, and I went and I applied for work. The interview went really well, and the fellow offered me a job. And I don't know why, but I just said, what do you do here? What, what is this company? I couldn't tell from the name. And he said, well, we're a liquor wholesaler. Oh, man. I'm about broke. I've got rent to pay. It's $60 a month. That was my rent in those days. I've got rent to pay, car insurance, don't have much food. Liquor wholesaler. I said, you know, I I appreciate that. I I wish I'd have known that. But I'm not going to be able to take the job because I think it's wrong to drink. And the fellow that I was talking to said, I totally understand, and I appreciate you letting me know. And so I walked out without a job. And I'm sure he was thinking, I really wish that kid hadn't wasted my time. Doesn't he know who we are? Well, I really didn't. So I walked out without a job, and you know it wasn't too long after that that I landed a job with an engineering firm. Hmm. I was their elevator operator. <laughs> and I did that successfully, believe it or not. I never did get anybody trapped in the elevator. It was one of those old-fashioned kinds. So I said, floor please, and I turned the handle one way or the other. And I was the elevator operator. I was going to school to be a computer programmer. And one day somebody called me, and it was a boss of a company. And they said, hey, your old boss in the job where you got laid off recommended you. We're needing somebody. Come down and talk to me. I go, okay. That's the job I still have. Lo, these many years later. And so I gave up that job as an elevator operator. And I went on to another job. And let's just say that I had never been able to find a good job ever in my life. That still would have been worth the price that I paid. You see, I couldn't stand thinking about going to work every day in an industry that I'm going to stand up, uh, stand up in front of people and say it's wrong to do that. That's not consistent. I couldn't do that. And as a teenager, let me tell you, that was really, really hard for me to do. And so you may be thinking, yeah, right. Well, understand, I didn't like being without a job. And there was a job that was going to offer me nearly $2 an hour. That was big money in my day. That was hard for me. Now, you will have your own story of what has been hard for you. But when you face your values and you're willing to say, I'm not going to be able to do that, I think we walk away better than we were when we walked in. Even when it's a cross to bear and it's hard for us. So cross bearing may mean us being careful with what jobs we take. It may mean being tolerant of neighbors as we hate their evil deeds but love their souls and look for an opportunity to help them learn to know Christ as we do. Cross bearing may mean giving up friends that influence us to do wrong. I've never yet seen someone grow successfully spiritually who will hang on to friends who insist on living in the gutter of life. I've never seen that work. And that's hard to do, to give up friends. But I've had to tell people before, until you do, it's not going to work for you. That may be your cross to bear. Cross-bearing in our lives is a constant evaluation, perhaps, of how we use our time. Crossbearing bearing may mean coming to worship when we'd be a lot more comfortable to just stay home. Cross-bearing may mean tolerating others with some weaknesses that they're trying to work through as they graciously tolerate us with ours. Cross-bearing for you ladies may mean the struggle that you have with the commitment to let your hair grow. Cross-bearing may mean tolerating a physical affliction or a handicap that is burdensome bearing may mean an acceptance of the frustrations of growing old. Cross-bearing at school may be kids that make fun of you because of what you will or won't do. Cross-bearing may be a class that you have to study extra hard for. Crossbearing may be a mate that's either not a Christian or not living the way they should. Crossbearing as a parent may be your children. Cross-bearing as a child may be your parents. And all of us have to ask ourselves, are we by our lives someone's cross to bear? Whatever it is that cross-bearing means to each of us, the crosses that we bear must be for God's glory and not our own. May we have the attitude that Paul had about his thorn in the flesh when he said in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 10, therefore I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong." And Paul did not feel this way because he considered himself anything special, but because he considered Christ and service to him worth anything he had to do and give up in life. He was willing to do that. Let's never forget the example of Christ. As our supreme leader, Jesus never stood back from the spiritual battle and just commanded his servants to go. He has gone the way before us. His cross stands in the middle, in the thick of our spiritual battle, and reminds us that it is a victorious risen Lord that says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus wants to share our burdens. He wants to share the journey with us. He'll let us walk in his footsteps. And he forever goes before us to encourage us to righteousness. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, Wherefore seeing we also are compassed or surrounded about, with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, the sin which doth so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. When we get tired, when we get discouraged, let us look to what Jesus did. Let us look to the cross, and surely we can handle anything this life throws at us. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m., and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7:30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.